said the shepherd boy to the mighty king, do you know what I know? Do you know what I know? In your palace warm, mighty king, do you know what I know? A child, a child, shivers in the cold, let us bring him silver and gold, let us bring
chapter 3. Awesome. Well, if you remember, last we left off, or we've come as far, is chapter 3, verse 1. We left off with John, um, well, Jesus as well, John the Baptist, obviously, the proclamation in chapter 1 of what was going to happen as far as Zechariah, or Zacharias, if you prefer, and specifically the fact that uh, Gabriel had visited and said, the son you're going to have, he's going to be a forerunner. He's, he's going to be in the spirit of Elijah. Just think about that. Wow, my boy, I knew he was special, but I know he's that, right? That's pretty amazing. And then on top of that, what's going to happen is he says that he's going to come and he's going to proclaim what all God's people have been waiting for, the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that God has come. And I think that's really remarkable and spectacular when you think of the fact that you and I are waiting right now for Christ to come again. And we know what it's like to be that, you know, to have that anticipation, that excitement, that joy, you know, especially as we're we're in the Christmas season and we, the blessing of that. Yesterday we had um, our blessed sister Sally, we had her memorial service and such a blessed time. You know, as I was going home and I was thinking about Sally and I was thinking, Lord, you know, I pray she was well pleased with, you know, the way things went down because, you know, just love her and I want to honor her and her family that way. And and I, all I could think about is she is just, if you know Sally, that smile ear to ear, she is just glowing with the Lord right now. And I just, it got me so excited as I read this, that expectation that soon, and very soon, we're all going to be with Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're coming, man. He's coming for us. We're coming. So <clears throat> then we went into the rest of chapter 2 where we started to look at the fact that uh, Jesus, at 12 years of age, really only kept in the, the account of Luke, where we got to see, again, some of those aspects of his humanity. Again, Jesus not being disrespectful, but when his parents had come looking for him, Mary and Joseph, and they, you know, we've been three days one day going, one day coming back, one day searching. Where were you? And he's like, I, I, I'm wrecked by the video. Mom and dad, I'm where you left me in the temple. I'm about my father's business. Are you being a wise Alec? No, no, I'm not. I'm where I thought you'd come, the house of God. And I thought, boy, that's a really good reminder to all of us. When things are difficult in our lives, where do we run? Are we running to Jesus? Are we looking everywhere else for the answers? And then we come to chapter 3 here. And 
there's an 18-year lag from chapter 2, verse 52, when Jesus was 12 years old, to now all of a sudden 18 years has passed. And Jesus Christ is now 30 years of age. He's just at the age, according to Numbers chapter, I believe it's 6, or it's either Numbers 4 or 6, forgive me at the moment, where it describes that priests would begin their ministry at 30 years of age, and it would last 20 years. At 50, there's no such thing as retirement in the Bible. At 50, what would happen is then they would transition from doing the sacrifices themselves as priests, and they would begin to train the next sort of generation of servants up to perform the sacrifice. So we clearly see, you know, some of us at you're 50, you're older, you're like, I'm just getting started, right? Well, you're in good company. You're in good company. Jesus here was 30, and he's, he's just getting started. And in three years, the whole world forever changed because of three beautiful years. But it started 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ came outside of creation into creation to give us his beautiful love and let us know that our Savior is come into the human form that we could experience and know what true relationship and salvation is. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning. This morning isn't like any other morning, Lord. Every day your mercies are made new. And Lord, today you have a plan and purpose. You've anointed your word. You have us in Luke chapter 3 here. And now as our eyes are going to be open to these things that you want us to hear during this specific time, for this specific purpose, may we receive all that your Holy Spirit wants to pour out liberally. May we be encouraged. May we be steadfast. May we take these, these things that John the Baptist had given those, the multitude that gathered, Lord, to, to, to heart, to be fruit bearers, to walk worthy of the new life we've been given in you, Jesus Christ. How much more today? Lord, that's our desire here. Change. Grow us. Form us into your likeness and image, Lord. For we alone want to serve you. We pray and we ask this in your name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen. So if you'll pick up with me in chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Arturia, and the region of Trachontinus, Licinius, Tetrarch of Albine, and you just read through that list, you're like, well, not only is that a tongue twister, right? Because that's a tongue twister. But what is Luke after here? Luke is a physician. He's using, no, it's good. He's he's using the scientific model, which is to every chapter and every time we see he comes in with an account, he grounds through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the reader, to a specific date and time and what is happening that this is very concrete. This isn't something that's a man's imagination as far as the, you know, just the infallibility of the word of God. And so he brings us to this point, and he, he does it because in those days, today, if I asked you, what did you do last year on the 21st? All of you would pick out your phone or your calendar or, or whatever you use as an organizer, and what would you do? You'd turn back 
to December or November, whatever month we, if I said November 21st, what did you do? You turn back to November 21st, you'd look right on that day and you'd say, oh. Back then they couldn't do that. There was no universal calendar. Every precinct and every area, Rome, you know, the Jewish people, the Hebrew calendar, they all had different calendars. So when you would say, oh, what, what's going on here? They would all have to go to their calendars. Well, on this date, well, we're doing this. And so when you tried to tie something into a specific period of time that you wanted it to be relatable to everyone, you would make sure that you listed not only a Roman government, like in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, who is emperor. So now you've listened, you know, you, you just pulled in your Gentile Roman uh, crowd that now understands. Uh, Pontius Pilate, oh, okay, if you're in that prefect, well, I, I've got that detail on my calendar because he's the, you know, he's over the prefect that I'm in, in Jerusalem. Okay, I know where that is, uh, of Judea. Herod, oh, wait a minute, not Herod the Great. He's dead by now. Herod the Tetrarch. His kingdom got broke up into three. So now we start to see it had to also be at the time where Herod, was, Herod the Great is no longer alive. Those kingdoms have been broken up, or what he oversaw was broken up into his three sons. And you had Herod the Herod of Galilee, right, of Arturia, of the region of, and he goes on. And then obviously, verse 2 is going to go into the Jewish audience. Because there's also something very significant that had never happened at that time. And that was they had two high priests. Again, very foreign at that time to have two high priests. Normally you had one high priest. Why would you have two high priests? Well, the answer is very simple. At that time, the people, and the people, if I can say the people's choice, was one of the high priests. However, the Roman government, again, trying to take on more authority than it was given to them, they came in and they had a better relationship with a different man and says, no, you're going to be high priest. So you actually have two high priests at the very same time, which also, what would that do? That would ground you to a specific period of time in a Hebrew calendar where you knew where you had two high priests. Very effective at what Dr. Luke is doing here. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Speaking of John the Baptist. Now, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot more detail about John the Baptist here. But he's, he's an gnarly dude. I mean, you think about this guy. He's not, he's not the guy that you would expect. This is not a man that's in a $2,000 suit that, you know, is driving the Rolls Royce that rolls in there because he's arrived and he, he's polished and he's, he looks real good and he's up there and he's got that smile, you know, almost like I'm wrecked by commercials, you know, where he smiles and all of a sudden, ding, you know, that little, yeah, you're wrecked too. All right. We're in good company. Well, this is not who John the Baptist was. If you, as a matter of fact, turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Hold your finger here, please. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 4. Well, I'm, I'm going to back up to verse 1, but the, the, the verse I want to draw you to is verse 4. But in those days, John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent. This was his message to the multitudes that were gathered. Repent. That's the Greek word metanoia. That means turn away. It literally connotes a 180 degree. You can't possibly just go like this. That's not turning away. No, I would, and forgive me for putting my back to you, but that's a full turning away. And that's exactly what this Greek word means. Repent, to turn away from your sin. He goes on and says, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is in hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, in verse 4, we're going to read a little here about this man. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You guys hungry? Ready for, ready for breakfast? <laughs> Pastor John up at Calvary Chapel, Finger Lakes, where I'm from, he, he, I remember with the kids, we'd read this in um, chapel. <laughs> and they'd read, oh, he didn't really eat bugs, and... Pastor John would come and say, bugs are very good for you. They have a lot of protein in them. And the kids were like, huh? And what would he open? He'd open one of those little things with chocolates, and it was a chocolate-covered grasshopper. And he would take it right out of the thing, and he'd go. <laughs> and he'd eat it, and he'd say, mm-mm-mm, who wants one? And all the kids were like, oh, you know? And they go, I guess you can eat bugs. And he says, and when they're chocolate dipped, they even taste real good, you know? And, but it, the idea here, it was with honey. So he took the honey. Who knows? Maybe, I don't know. Honey's really good. So he turned around, and he would eat this. This is not the man that most people you, you would think about. What is this lesson for us is that God uses people many times that if we're being honest with ourselves, this isn't a guy that looks all put together. This isn't a guy that looks like he belongs on TV. You know, this isn't a guy that, that maybe the multitudes would have come to him and says, oh, he, he looks like everybody else. He doesn't. He's rough around the edges, man. He's got, you know, a big burly beard, this long hair. He's got a hairy, you know, coat. He's got this big belt on, and he's like, hey, you know what I mean? This is not the guy that most people would be expecting to go to for their spiritual answers. And yet, that's the very man that God chose. Isn't that interesting? The culture has a, a unique way of trying to tell us who's more religious. But our Bible makes it very clear that when Jesus anoints and calls, it's perfect regardless of what the appearance looks like. It's a good warning for us. So here's this man, John the Baptist, right? The baptizer. And he's the son of Zacharias or Zachariah. In the wilderness. And he went into all the region of the Jordan, verse 3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, that idea, if you've ever gone over to Israel, you know this part of the um, Jordan, this wilderness, this area here in Judea area, it actually is out towards Jericho. If you were going to go as far as you could, if you could left Jerusalem and you go down and you leave and you go head out and you head over towards Jericho, right where the Jordan and Jericho come together, we believe, and if you took a tour in Israel, they would bring you there. We believe this is the exact spot that this is talking about right now, closer to Jericho than Jerusalem, actually. But this is where he was so, people would have to travel to get out there, and these multitudes would come. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, and I think this is important, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And here it is. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I was telling first service, you know, I get to this passage often, you know, my sinuses start running. 
Because normally, I, if I'm alone and I read this passage, I, a lot of times I begin to weep. Because as I said, I think about Jesus coming outside of creation from heaven down to a humble, a humble birth. I know it's 30 years later, but coming in a very unique way that all could come to him, knowing that he alone has the authorship or the ability to give salvation. It changes everything. This passage also explains John's calling. You know, many of you, all of you, have a calling on your life from the Lord. It's so interesting and so amazing to see prophetically that John's calling 700 years before he lived was laid out for him. This is chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. And it was written down and it explains his calling in a very humble way what he was going to do, that he was going to make a path straight. Every valley, Jesus speaking of Jesus, that he would prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley should be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places or the crooked places shall be made straight, the rough way smooth. Talk about a calling for John the Baptist. You know, he, please understand how unique this was. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, all the garb and the pomp and circumstances that went on at that time. And here's this man in the wilderness and he's preaching truth. And yet the culture of that day would have said, this guy's crazy. What is he doing? Look how he's dressed. Look what he's eating. Look what he's doing out there. And yet God used this man. He didn't use a religious leader. He used a man that loved the Lord. A man that was willing to, for his life, give it up entirely to be used by God. And that's really significant because John the Baptist's entire ministry, I've said it before, is 18 months. 30 years of preparation, because remember, he was about six months older than Jesus Christ. So for 30 years and six months worth of preparation, his entire ministry to the time he'll be beheaded is 18 months. It's important, as we'll see, because he's not only going to declare a message to the people of salvation, but he's also going to live it out. And that's the point of this passage here in chapter 3. It's bear fruit worthy of repentance. Be a Christian. Don't speak Christianese only. That's what he's saying here. This is heavy stuff. Can you imagine how this would be received? Those thousands of years ago in Jerusalem where they're saying, I'm the son of Abraham. I'm entitled to this because of my birthright. I'm immediately going to go to heaven just because of who I was born. You know, I'm born a Jew. I'm... And John has to stand out there in the wilderness and say, boy, you got it all wrong. Abraham was saved because it was accounted to him. Righteousness, faith was accounted to him for righteousness. And I'm not saying that the Jews aren't God's chosen people. Absolutely they are. And praise the Lord, we're to pray for them. Genesis 12. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. God makes that very clear in his word. But, but also we learn something here. It's very, very important. Look what he says here. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized, they recognized the general calling from this man. They had people coming out to learn about it. That's striking. Be honest, if you were here today and some guy came in with ragged, you know, you know, 
burly beard, and he's out, and he says, come out to me, and you know, I'll meet you out down by, uh, you know, I don't know, pick somewhere near us here, 30 minutes away. You'd look at the guy, you'd say, I don't know about this guy. But if a guy turned around and put on a dress shirt or stood in front of you, oh, this is, he's got to be, he's got to be a lord. I think it's causing us to check our understanding or our perceptions is what I'm getting at. And I think that's exactly what the Lord was doing here. But the reality is you can't deny the moving of the Holy Spirit because all these multitudes and people came out and they were willing to follow or they were willing to understand what this man was going to share. And that's only by God because people were seeking truth just like they are today. There's a whole lot of things going on within the church today that don't line up with scripture. And there's a whole lot of people that are they're weaving a tapestry that suits their own need. And they're drawing men to themselves or women to themselves rather than drawing them to Christ. And it's not a work of God. It's a work of man. It's a work of, as Timothy said it, deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. Because they've moved away from the Bible and they've begun to believe in entertainment and man's wisdom rather than the exhortation of the word of God. It's really not that different. That's what I'm trying to get everyone of us to see. It's not that different. So they come out to be baptized by him. And he looks at them and he says, you are the most wonderful people I have ever met. No, he says, you brood of vipers. You son of snakes. You know what another translation for that be? You sons of devils. That's a real way to influence, you know, win people and influence them to the Lord, right? Dale Carnegie's got nothing on this guy, how to win friends and influence people. We all need John the Baptist, don't we, though? We need people that are going to say it like it is. He wasn't a respecter of persons when those multitudes came out. He didn't turn around and say, oh, you're, a president, you're, you're this, you're that. Oh, well, then you get to follow a different standard. As a matter of fact, the message that John is about to preach from God to these people is your stature doesn't matter. Your office and your employment and the things you do don't matter. Everyone must come to God and it's an individual relationship. It doesn't matter who your parents are, where you've been born, the things you've been born into. None of that's going to save you. Only Messiah Jesus will. Do you know how shocking that would have been? Because even the Jewish people, when John is saying, repent, they would have said, "Get! how dare you tell me to repent? How dare you tell me I need to be baptized? That's only for the proselytes. In other words, the Gentiles that were going to be converted to Judaism. That was common for what they would do. How dare you put me in the same class as these Gentiles? That's exactly what John's proclaiming when he says, get baptized that way. That's exactly what he's saying to the people. He's making it very clear. We're all equal that way. There is nobody that's arrived. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Friends, that's the same message today. The wrath of God is coming. It's through the great tribulation. And those that aren't raptured, those that aren't saved, those that don't know Jesus Christ, are going to go through the wrath. Wrath is for judgment. Why, oh, why do we need judgment? Because we're living in a world that has chosen to reject Jesus Christ and has chosen to reject his commandments, statutes, and judgments. And Jesus Christ is a very long-suffering God. He's very patient. He's loving. 
But he also has to be righteous because he's God. He also has to not be a respecter of persons because he's God. And if he's truly a judge and he let those that have mocked him or mocked God's law not have a consequence to sin, and he basically could be bought off or however you want to put it, would he be a righteous judge then? He wouldn't be a God worth following to be transparent with you this morning. But that's not who he is. He's a very righteous judge. So righteous that he doesn't even send you to hell. Do you know who does? You. Self. Those that reject Jesus Christ send themselves to hell. God's desire is that all would be saved. He goes on and says, Therefore, here's the point, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He already told them in, in chapter, or, uh, you know, in chapter three here, verse three, that they needed to repent for the remission of their sins. They heard that loud and clear. But in verse eight, he's saying, when you're saved, you're saved from something. You were saved from self. You were saved from sin. You were saved from your carnality. You were saved from your old nature. He says, now don't keep walking in it. Don't take the old man and keep following the old man around. You're a new creation. All things have been made new. He says, you walk after the new man, not the old man. He says, you bear fruits. You know, one of the things that Jesus condemns, convicts, maybe a better term, Israel, when he goes to the fig trees, he says, look, you're all leaves and no fruit. You look appetizing. You look like you're something that you're not. I come up to you. I have hunger. I come to you to eat the, the fruit, the fig that should be on the tree. But when I get close enough to, and I see how beautiful these leaves are, I expect even more bountiful fruit, and I get closer. And then when I get up there, there's nothing. So from an appearance and a distance, oh, you're walking like a Christian. You, you, you've got the Christian language down. You can speak Christianese. But there's nothing that's been transformed in you. There's been nothing that's, that's bore fruit that describes non-verbally who you are in Christ Jesus, that you're born again, and that that old man is dead, dead to you. That old woman is dead to you, Romans 6 says. He says, and, and do not begin to say to yourself, he already knows, the Holy Spirit's given it to him. He already knows what their excuse is going to be. Well, I don't need to do that. You know, I, I am a, a Jewish person, and, and therefore I'm of the father, my father Abraham, and, and therefore I'm, 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 you know, this doesn't apply to me. He says, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Oh my. You understand what he's really saying here? He turns around and he looks at him and he says, Look, even these inanimate objects, God could have created children out of Abraham from these stones. Inanimate objects can't get saved, can they, friends? Everybody ought to answer that one correctly, right? You understand that inanimate objects cannot be saved. Only humans can. Why? Can your dog be saved? Oh, I'm going to start trouble with PETA this morning. Can your dogs be saved? No. Why? Because they don't have spirit, right? What are humans? The human condition, right? We have body, we have soul, and we have spirit. Your animals, what do they have? Depending if you have, if you have a cat, they have nothing. No, I'm joking. If you have, <clears throat> <laughs> 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 
If you have a dog, you have a son. I love you, cat lovers. It's okay. I love you, cat lovers. Uh, I think of Mrs. Q. She's got a cat at home. She's probably like, I told him. Um, if, you, if you have a soul, right? The animals, they have a soul and they have a body, right? I, I joke around my dog sometimes. I walk in the room and kind of in there. He's looking around. And he doesn't know why he walked in there. And then he just walks right out. He's not reasoning like, that was a lot of work. I just came all the way in here, you know? I might at least lay down for a few minutes and then get up and walk out. And then my, my, my dog's like, mm. you know, I've never seen him do that. You know, there's, there's not that conviction, you know, that spiritual conviction. That's what he's speaking about here. That the fact is, is that your spirits need to be redeemed. He says that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. It's, you have your own need for salvation. It's not just because your father Abraham or you're born into Judaism or you're born into Christianity if you grew up in a Christian home that's going to save you. He's basically saying, I could take these chairs and make children out of them, but that's not going to save the chairs because they're inanimate objects. They can't be saved. It's only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's really saying here. He says, and even now the ax is laid to the root of these trees. Therefore, please circle this in your Bible, every tree. He doesn't differentiate from what kind of tree it is, whether it's a tree that gets grafted in later, which is what's referenced as the Gentile, or the original root of that tree, which a Jewish person uses every tree. He makes this very clear which does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you're not saved, it's not, churches call sin stuff today because they don't want to hurt people's feelings. It's not stuff, it's sin. It separates you eternally from God. We need forgiveness. We need repentance. We need salvation. And Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other way. The Bible teaches there's no other way. All of creation even testifies there's no other way. This had to be very difficult for the Jew to hear this, for those in the multitudes that gathered to hear this. Now, just so we're not confused here, in verses 10 through um, 14 or 15, the object is not that they didn't completely hear John, the Baptist, or even understand I think they're trying to reason through this. You know when you hear something for the first time that's very different from anything you've heard before? Your natural instinct is to try to reason through it or understand the sort of the, the boundaries of it, if you might say it that way, or, or what, what is encompassed in this. And this is exactly what we see. He's going to use three, three different examples of, of uh, men and women, one being a people, which is representing of citizens, multitudes, right? The next one he's going to use is a tax collector, which would have been a government official, one considered to have esteem uh, or a job of priority that way, or authority. And the third he's going to use is a soldier. And a soldier isn't like a soldier is typically today. Uh, many of our soldiers today um, are not also police officers. And in those days, a military individual was also a police, what we would call a police officer, and a soldier, uh, someone who would fight in wars to protect um, uh, harm or freedom that way, okay? It's combined. They use both. So that means to enact or protect 
um, citizens from disobeying or breaking the law. That would also be what a soldier would do, as well as engage in uh, battles and, and, and war that way. Again, something considered very noble and honorable. But again, the point is not enough to save you. So the people asked them, saying, what shall we do then? As though they didn't read verse 8. <laughs> Repent, right? Uh, or verse 3, I meant to say, and then later on. What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The idea here with tunics, it's an undergarment. Most people would have maybe two. If you were wealthy, you might have five or six. The reality is he's saying, take from your abundance and give it to somebody else who has nothing. That's exactly what he says here. That, that's, that, in the eyes of the kingdom of God, is bearing fruit. In other words, you're living out the message in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not just acquiring and building and building of your own, but you're living in a way to bless and help others. And he says, and those that have no food, someone that's struggling to eat, you didn't eat, you die. It wasn't like they had social welfare programs back then. He says, do likewise. Don't store up barns of food so that if a famine comes, you can just take care of yourself. But if you're going to store up that food when the famine comes, make sure you're willing to share that with every single person that has a need. I'm relating it to our day. I think everybody gets that, where I'm going with that one. I know with the pandemic, a lot of people with the supply chain, there was a lot of things going on. And, and certainly there's wisdom to pack in your freezer with deer meat or whatever else you got. There's wisdom in that. But to think I now have to somehow build a fortress so that people can't get when they have need. That's what was happening. The citizens and the people were thinking about themselves and not as Jesus had come. What are the greatest of these two commandments? Love the Lord God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor. That's what religion does. Religion focuses on the self and it doesn't bring about a care for others. Now, please notice he didn't say give everything you have. Give it all away and you can't have anything nice. He didn't say you couldn't have a tunic. He just says, give of your abundance. Give of your abundance. I want to be very clear about this. He's not, he's not calling everybody to be impoverished. He's not, he's not telling you to take a vow of poverty here. He's just saying, out of what you have, if you can bless and help someone else, well, well, that would be a good way to do that because that's going to open the door to the gospel. And that's also going to bear fruit that shows that there's a difference in your life because instead of you living for you, you're now living for others, to help others, to bless others, to encourage them. And that's exactly the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then the tax collectors, they, they, the government officials came and said, well, now I get for the common people. Certainly you don't mean we're going to do that, right? Now tax collectors at that time, they would have been very wealthy. Their government hires uh, typically, Rome would come in and, and, and they would go to a local area and say, hey, uh, how many of you? And they would take Jewish soldiers and things like that. And they would 
say, how many of you would like, not even just soldiers, but people, how many of you would like to be tax collectors? You're going to pay a very, very, really, you know, nice wage, and it's a guarantee. And it's, it's, it's one of those carnal kind of jobs, too, because what would happen is he says, hey, look, the way Rome did it, and nothing wrong with taxes and paying our taxes. We're supposed to do that. Jesus even commanded that. But what he's talking about here is those that would come in and the way Rome would do this, they enticed this. They actually created a carnality in this because they would turn around and say, okay, I'm going to take a slew of you as tax collectors. Let's pretend you're tax collectors this morning. Hey, Rome needs $10 million, and I'm going to break it up by your different precincts. You a million, you a million, you a million, and it adds up to $10 million, okay? And that satisfies what Rome needs for the government. Again, nothing wrong with that. He's not knocking that. Okay, the services, streets, things like that. Okay, all, all well and good. But then what they said after that, and it's very documented, very extra biblically, you can read about it, Josephus wrote about it, others wrote about it. They would turn around and say to them, hey, I know you only need to bring in a million. If you get a million and a half, good for you. You just take the 500,000 and you consider that a gift from Rome. You see what that did? Then all of a sudden as the tax collectors were going out, instead of collecting what was supposed to be collected, which would have been, well, you can argue fair or not, they turned around and they were double and over, triple taxing people so that they could have personal gain again, drawing back to what? Self. Again, it all comes back to self. It's, a, it's this personal gain of putting myself in a situation better than at the back of, on the back of somebody else. He says, then the tax collector also came to be baptized and he said to him, teacher, what shall we do? What's required of us? He says, don't exploit persons. Don't do that, because while you may have personal gain, it's at the cost of misrepresenting God. That's really important. Each and every one of us, all of you here this morning, you're entrusted. You have jobs. You have different things. Um, you're entrusted in your profession where God's called you. Pastors, don't flee sheep. Elders, don't flee sheep. No, what's... He goes on to say, look, and he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. No more than what you're supposed to do. No more than what's right. But the goal is not personal gain. Likewise, number three here, the soldiers asked, again, police officers as we would know them today, soldiers, saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely or be con and be content with your wages. And that's not really that different than today. When you think about police officers and you think about how they risk their lives, men and women, to protect and establish laws that protect you and I, as we're seeing in some of these cities that have fired their law enforcement, they're having big problems now, not only with crime and looting and all that stuff, but murder and, and the death, you know, I mean, we're seeing these, these crimes continue to rise and rise and rise in these cities. And they almost, you know, he says he'd give them debased minds. We stand back, any of us that are quasi-logical about this, and we're like, so you fire the people that are supposed to enforce the law, and you expect the very goodness of everyone's heart just to, especially those that don't know Christ, to actually just do the right thing, and it's just going to be a kumbaya. Yeah, how's that working for you? You know, it's not working. Why? Because the Bible already tells us. No, there's not one good. We're filthy rags. We're carnal without Christ. 
That, that's just our nature. That's who we are. It's what we're born into. Some people here this morning are saying, wait a minute, I'm a good person. Okay. What standard of good are you using, yours or Christ's? Was Christ a good person? Can you measure up to Christ? And I think the answer is no. No one can. It's not about how good you are. It's about what Christ has done for you in spite of you and me. So he says, be content with your wages because in those days, police officers were not paid well. The military was not paid well. They're risking their lives. It's, it's like people in the medical field. They're not, I mean, some people, all oh, doctors, yeah, they're not paid as well as they should be. You, you do realize that these are people that are putting themselves right on the front lines, that when bad things are happening, people are sick, coughing in their face and sneezing, you know, then you, and they're just like, you know, collecting a paycheck. And then, oh, by the way, if you don't do things the way we want it, then we're just going to fire you and let you go. It's like it never, ever happened. Do you realize what's happening? Just as though we just spit out people. Because there's no absolute for individuals when they choose to follow what's in their best interests instead of the word of God and the Lord. And that's exactly what we see happening. And, and somehow we're promised this utopia if, if we don't do it this way. And that's not, that's, he's warning it right here. He says, no, and be content with your wage. That had to be hard to hear that as a police officer or a military individual or a health. Hey, be content with what God has given you. Given you. He says, don't intimidate. Don't, don't, you know, don't turn around and prey on other people. He says, repent, bear fruit. He says, bear fruit wherever you are, wherever you're serving, and wherever you're laboring. That's the message, and it doesn't matter your position. You could be the president of the United States, God pray for him, get him saved, or you could turn around and, you know, I don't even know what, you know, to put the, 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 the where to put the bar there, but the point is, is everything in between we all of us, we need Jesus Christ. And without him, there is no salvation. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, as they're taking this in, they're thinking, I've never heard anybody else say this. Because you know what the religious leaders were saying at that point? They're, they're saying, they have all the garb on, you know, kiss the ring kind of deal. I'm adding that in. That actually didn't happen at that time. That wasn't until Catholicism. But the, 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 the reality is, you know, it was... There's, and it still happens today, there's been this thing with religious leaders throughout the dawn of the age where there's this temptation to allow yourself to in some way be worshipped or thought of higher or more highly than you ought. I, I, I think about this often because it's very easy, and it's a little different in our country and our culture, but if you were to take a trip over to India, and I know there, there are people that fellowship here that lived in India, and, they, and so they know what I'm talking about. We had an, in Calvary Chapel many, many years ago, we had a missionary, I won't use his name, but highly respected ministry, and he traveled with a few of the Calvary Chapel pastors over to India. And, you know, we're pretty simple. Come as you are, right? That, that's, you know, we're simple ministry. You know, we, we love Jesus. We love the word of God. They got over to India. 
and they're very, you know, certainly very respectful, and they, they turned around, and he got over there, and all of a sudden he began to put on a mantle, you know, what that is like a scarf kind of deal. And they went over, and they began to kiss his hand. And I remember the pastor that was sharing this with me, he literally had a check. And he said, what are you doing? He says, well, no, this is what they want to do. It's the culture here. They, they, you know, it would be disrespectful not to let them show honor this way. And he says, oh, no. It's disrespectful not to point them to Jesus Christ as the only one that delivers, deserves that glory and honor. Never a man. And he says, you're done. You're done. And I, I just, I want you to understand that it's very easy in, these, in those days, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they were very wealthy. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of power, a lot of influence. The scribes, who were the lawmakers, part of that, the government, you know, to interpret the law. It was very easy for them to say, this is it. And everybody just beckoned to it. I mean, look how it's been exploited through the generations. Different denominations, different churches, that kind of stuff. Selling indulgences, you know, doing different things like that. Well, they look at John, and he's speaking in a way they've never heard. What do you mean? You mean that we're all born needing a Savior, and that regardless of our position, whether we're Pontius Pilate, or whether we're a Claudius, an emperor, or whether just little old me, you mean that none of us get a leg up or some type of special treatment when we come to God? And John the Baptist says, Exactly. No one has arrived. Everybody puts their pant leg on one leg at a time, or their pants on one leg at a time, and everybody needs Jesus Christ. He's a forerunner. He's the one preparing the way. He's changing the ideology of their thoughts in those days, of what it would have been that they would know and how to expect Messiah, that everybody would be able to receive him. Everybody would be able to understand that they could come and be forgiven for their sin. It wasn't just the rich or the, those self-proclaimed righteous. It was for everyone. That's the ministry of this man, John the Baptist. And praise God for it. So they, 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 what do they do? They, they say, well, then you must be Messiah. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Whether he was the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, or not. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, Jesus, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That, that conjunction there in the Greek, the chi, you see it says and, that's what it means in the Greek. He's saying one and the other, not both. It sound, our conjunction of and would be, we would much prefer an or in the English translation, but in the Greek, and they do, the chi is the same, you can, it can be applied either way. Chi can mean and, and, or, or in the Greek. The Holy Spirit speaks of God. Right? Those that believe and don't reject Jesus Christ will be saved. They will receive the Holy Spirit. We all understand that as born-again believers. And maybe you don't. Maybe you're here and you don't know that. But there's also something coming 
for those that reject Jesus Christ. And it's called fire. And it's not just fire like we would, it's like Gehenna fire. So let's talk about that. He breaks it out in verse 17. He says, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Now do we start to understand in context what this fire is? He's talking about hell. He's talking about those that reject Christ, send themselves to hell, in essence, and it's eternal torment. And I don't know about you if you've ever thought about this, but can you imagine every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord. You're going to stand before God. You're going to know what you've done. You're going to know that you basically said, no, I'm going to do it my way. And then when you stand before him that way, that based on that decision, you will now spend eternity. There's no soul sleep. There's no annihilation. Scripture doesn't teach that. You're going to spend eternity. And the best way that Jesus Christ, who has the complete control of the entire grammar of language, uses a term of gnashing of teeth. He describes it as a way where there's no place even for the worm to find rest or relief. Do you know what gnashing of teeth is? You ever drink your teeth and you just bite down like this? Because you're under constant, constant stress and pressure and tension. This isn't something that just physiologically happens, but the inner turmoil from knowing that you see the one true God and you know he's there, he's your father, he created you, he knit you in your mother's womb, and in turn, you rejected him. Because you wanted to be God. Whoa, pastor, that's a leap. Is it? Is it a leap? Is that not what you do when you reject Jesus Christ, the one true God? Are you not in essence saying, I know better? I know more? I am God? Because I, 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 just like Lucifer, I will be like the God most high. Is it any different, friends? It's not. If we're being honest with each other this morning, if we're being transparent, if we have open hearts and minds to receive the truth of the gospel, to receive the word of God that we're saying here, is it wrong to say that? Maybe somebody's heard here this morning. Pastor, that sounds like a fire and brimstone without the pounding. No. I'm simply telling you what the Bible says. We just read it together. That there are those when they hear of Jesus Christ, will receive him and receive the Holy Spirit and be saved. And then there are those, when they hear of Jesus Christ, will turn and desire to be worshiped themselves, whether that's self-indulgence or what have you, and reject Jesus Christ and therefore seal their eternal fate in hell. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. Sin is not stuff. And John is teaching nothing but the truth that was given to him as a forerunner. And he's doing this so that people make a choice today to live for Christ and to bear fruit worthy of repentance. But not to pretend to be a Christian or to tend to speak like a Christian, but then not be willing to live like a Christian. 
which is exactly what John the Baptist was dealing with, with the Jewish people. Did they not know who God was? Yes. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They know. These are not men that don't understand the existence of God. These are men that chose to be gods instead of worship the one true God. And with many other exhortations, and that tells us there's more that he was giving, more messages, he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him, well, that's the problem there, isn't it? Concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. All the evils. You do understand this isn't just idolatry, it's actually incest. Because Herod had desires for his brother Philip's wife, that by definition right there is adultery, right? But there was also a relationship there because that was the sister. So guess what? That makes that incest on top of it. And so all these other evils that he had done. And so John the Baptist turns around and he stands out there and he's got this $2,000 suit on. He looks good, man. The cameras are rolling. He's got the smile, ting. He turns around. Everybody's paying attention. He says, I preach one thing for you all, but when it comes down to it and I see Herod and I see what the Tertiarch's doing, you know what? I go up to him and I say, Herod, you do what's right for you. For the regular people, though, I'm going to give a different message because I'm not going to put my neck out there and die. I'm not going to get beheaded for this whole thing. And that's not what my Bible says. What's your Bible say? My Bible says that he let the audio and video play and the audio and video matched. That the words he gave spoken as a prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets, please understand, 400 years of silence has been near. There hasn't been a prophet in this land for 400 years since Malachi and then the intertestamental period. There's a 400-year period of silence. And then God brings John the Baptist on the scene, and this is the message that God gives the people at that time. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The clock has started. It's running. The decisions you make now will have eternal consequences. That's what he's saying. And he's saying you better be willing and understand the consequences of the decisions you make. He goes on to say, and the count testifies to it, that John turned around and went to that leader and says, you know what? Herod, I know what you're doing. It's sin. I don't care what your position is and what authority you have. I'm not a respecter of persons. I'm a mouthpiece for God. It's sin. It's wrong. Herod says, I got one for you. <laughs> I'll make that easy. You're going to prison. John says that, that's, that's what you want. And then he's in prison. And he's whole ministry, 18 months. And Jesus Christ is on the scene at this point, as we know in the harmony of the other gospels. And he comes with disciples to Jesus and says, are you him? He says, well, the deaf hear, you know, the mute speak, the blind see, and the lame walk. So now even John the Baptist has to sort of reconcile this in his mind. But wait a minute, this is the plan? Yeah. It's time to go home. You've done everything you were called to do, John. John didn't turn around and go, well, can't you do a miracle and help me in this one? No, he was at peace and content with the fact that his ministry was complete. 
and therefore he belonged with Jesus Christ. He didn't belong here any longer, and it would have been wrong for him to be so. Nobody talks about that anymore. Nobody talks like that anymore. We got so comfortable with our modern pharmacia and everything else that we use. Want to live forever, do all these things. Also added this, above all, he shut John up in prison. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, Luke is the only one that gives us this account, that Jesus was praying. We don't get this in Matthew or Mark. We, only, only Luke brings this out. Jesus was praying that heaven opened. Now, I think you understand this. This is not the same baptism. I, I, I don't want to make an assumption here. This is not the same thing as the baptism you and I do today since Christ has come. Yes, it's a water baptism. I understand that. The water is similar, the idea here. But the idea of Romans 6 teaches that we're baptized because we associate our old life with the death going under the water crucified, all right, death, and then coming up to newness of life. It's an, it's basically an outward response to an inward transformation that's happened in our hearts. That's why we get baptized. We're professing to the whole world what Christ has done inside of us, that new, that transition, that transformation. And so this is different. This is actually what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may be looking and go, I've never seen that before. Well, let's, let's look at this together. He's praying. Heaven's opened. And the Holy Spirit, please underline Holy Spirit for a moment, please. He descended in bodily form like a dove. And then the word that's very imperative here in the Greek, upon. That word in the Greek is a P. It's the very same passage we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. That specifically when Jesus Christ is about to, or he is about to ascend into heaven, he says the Holy Spirit's going to come. And he's going to come upon you, a P, to give you power. To do what? To live out the Christian life and the ministry that I've called you to. Jesus said it was a necessity, that he had to go so that the Holy Spirit could come that way. It was, an, it was a gift of the Father. If you read Acts 1, it's actually a gift of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what we see. Why is this significant? Because in chapter 4, next week, we're going to read right about the time that he's about to go out to be tempted by you know, Satan, before he's going to go into the, the beginning of the Galilean ministry, he's giving us the pattern and example here that once you're saved, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit so then you are equipped to do the work of the ministry that God's called you because in of yourself and myself, I can do nothing good of my own. I could be saved, but still without the power of the Spirit of God to be able to move to accomplish the things that I am called to do for the work of the ministry, to the serve, to labor. Ephesians 4. It's Ephesians 4 all over again. Equipping saints for the work of the ministry. We understand that's why we come to church. But then the power of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and Romans chapter 13. I mean, it's not just one place. It's all throughout your Bible. But a P comes upon him. And a voice came from heaven. By the way, underline him, please. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son, and yet and in you I am well pleased. Who's saying that? Is that Jesus saying that? No. Is that the Holy Spirit saying that? No. Who's saying that? The Godhead, the Father in heaven. What do you have a picture of here? The Trinity. Why is the Trinity 
expressly brought out in this particular situation. Very, very important. Anybody who says there's not, uh, you know, one God in three persons, that's exactly what this brings out. And they're all present at the very same time recorded in Scripture this way. Because there are very charismatic movements within the church or the body of Christ that try to come out and say, you see, the problem is that's true, one God, but those three persons can't be actually... Um, all together at the same time, or, you know, it's, it's either God moving as the father, um, God then kind of leaves the father. I don't even know how to explain it the way they would. And then, you know, becomes the son. And then when he's not the son, he, he then becomes, you know, the Holy spirit as though the substance kind of, you know, floats between the, the different vessels that way, which is blasphemous, but nonetheless, that's not what your Bible teaches. And I love to bring people passages like this when they say, well, is there really a triune God? Or, or my Jewish, you know, friends, I love to bring them past Yes, he's one God, but he's three persons. How do you deny this? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because that's their rub, is that Jesus could be the Son of God because they, they hold on to the, you know, one God. They, 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 don't understand, they, they don't comprehend this aspect. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as it was supposed... Now, I think this isn't important here. Um, the reason it says is being as it was supposed is because, um, and we just don't have time to go through the genealogy difference between Matthew and Luke, but go back and listen to Matthew chapter one when I taught that many years ago. But if, if you want, it's on the website or through the church app, it'll help ex explain more of the genealogy differences. But suffice it to say that women were always identified um, with the father's tribe. And what Luke is about to give us is the genealogy or lineage of Mary. So he's acknowledging it, but he doesn't know how to put it into words because it's an immaculate conception. So Joseph isn't technically the biological father of Mary, okay? Every, you, we all understand that. Mary was, you know, through the Holy Spirit, she was the biological mother of Jesus, if you can say it that way, but, but Joseph was not. So, you know, Luke's trying to figure out how... I don't even know how to put this in Greek, let alone English, let alone any. I mean, how do you record this? So he says, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli or Heli, right? Now that, that's the key right there. Underline that. That's everything. Because if you go right to Matthew and you go to the genealogy and we know this, who is Matthew's father? Or not Matthew, excuse me, Joseph. Who is Joseph's father according to the genealogy of Matthew and also Josephus and extra biblical writings? It was Jacob. We know that because it's in the genealogy of Matthew that it was Jacob that was the father. So clearly Joseph's father is not Heli or Heli. So whose father can it be? It's Mary's. It's Mary's because it's not Joseph's. But remember, how is it tracked? Women are identified by the father's what? Tribe. Why is this significant? Because Luke is speaking to a primarily Gentile audience. He's not talking to a Jewish audience like Matthew is. So Luke isn't going to turn around and just give a Jewish origin of genealogy back to Abraham because they'd go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, like, my name's not in there. Do I care about this? Uh-huh, 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 right? Just like maybe somebody here, I don't know, maybe me, I don't know. You know, it, you get the point? Am I in this? If I didn't... No, what's he, he's... He's going back. He's going to go all the way to Adam. Do you know why? It, because Adam was the son of God. 
And the whole point is, is that Christ came to redeem all of humanity, not just the Jewish people, not just the non-Jewish people, all, all people that way. And so he goes to show both that Mary and Joseph, because we know Joseph's line from Matthew very clearly of the Davidic line, tribe of Judah. And as we read here, we know that Mary's line was of the tribe of Judah. Both were of that tribe. But I just want to point it out, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So that's only a surface I touched on it, right? I, we don't have time. I could spend another hour just on this aspect of genealogy. We don't have time. Go back and listen to Matthew for that if you want. But this is what it's pointing out, that this is Mary's genealogy line that way. The son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathahiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, or Nahum, the son of Eli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mathahiah, the son of Semi, or Semi, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Johannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elomadam, the son of Ur, the son of Josi, the son of um, Eleazar, the son of Jerim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, important, the son of Joseph, the son of Joanan, the son of Elikim, Elikim, the son of Mela, the son of Menan, the son of Matanah, the son of Nathan, the prophet, right, right? No, different Nathan, huh? The son of David, the king, King David, the son of Jesse, his father, the son of Obed, therefore the fulfillment, 27% of your Bible is prophecy, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant right there, you can underline it in your Bible, had to be, needs be. The son of Obed, the son of Boaz, we remember that uh, from Ruth, the son of Solomon, the son of Nashon, the son of Binadab, the son of Ram, the son of Herzon, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. Underline that again, tying it all back to the tribe of Judah, which was again prophesied. You and I didn't get to choose our birth lines, did we? You didn't get to choose where your father, mother, or whoever was born from. We didn't get to choose that. That's one of the things when people say, how do you know Jesus is Messiah? Because there's 500 different scriptures prophetically that describe what he has to do, where he had to come from, and where he had to be born. You didn't get to choose those, neither did he, and he fulfilled every one of them. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah. So that, that, at that point, the son of Abraham is where uh, uh, Matthew's line would stop because to a Jewish audience, well, then I'm the father Abraham, right? Okay. By the way, Abraham was a Gentile, just so you know. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Shurug, the son of Ru, uh, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the flood, right? Genesis 6. The son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth. You see, the son of Seth, in which all humanity after that point was born in likeness and image, according to Genesis 5, of man, no longer Jesus Christ. That's why when we were saved, we also received a new nature that happened on the cross too. And when we received Christ. The son of Adam, and then it ends with the son of God. And that's it right there. It explains that Jesus is Messiah, and it goes all the way back to Adam, that all of us have the opportunity because God is the father of all of humanity. All he's asking is that today would be the day of salvation. Look, don't walk out of here. If you haven't asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, don't walk out of here today. I, I, other than a genealogy, I mean, people have gotten saved 
from just reading a genealogy because genealogies matter. Every jot and tittle matters in the word of God. But if, as we just heard John the Baptist so eloquently through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit lay this out, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter who your grandparents are. It doesn't matter how, you know, good of a person you believe you are. There's nothing you can do to take away the things that you've done to wrong others, yourself, and all of humanity. Because sin permeates. It propagates. It's, it's not something that's just self-contained. When I sin, it hurts all of you in any capacity. And when we sin, we hurt others. Only Jesus Christ had the capability because he kept the law, was without sin, entered into creation supernaturally through the Immaculate Conception, through the birth of Mary, but not through the line of Joseph, which means he didn't enter through sin nature the way every other human being has been born. One earthly father, one earthly mother entered through sin nature. Jesus didn't do that. And yet he fulfilled the law, every single jot and tittle of the law, prophetically, Everything that was required, he did completely, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. He was without sin. And as we read in Scripture, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the message this morning, that all of us need a Savior. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The clock has started. He's coming again. We're in the last of the last days. I read these things. I can't miss it. I read Revelation. I read the rest of the New Testament. I can't miss the fact, just like you couldn't miss John the Baptist and the message he's giving, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. You knew your word. You knew what was happening. You knew Jesus was Messiah. You're living today. You're a born-again believer. You know the things that needs be. All of them prophetically kept, met, completed. The only thing that's waiting is the rapture of the church, which can happen at any time. Doesn't require a rebuilt temple before a rapture. I will put that out there because some people hold to that. There's nothing biblically that says it's going to happen. The only thing that that speaks of is in Ezekiel to the fact that by the time Messiah comes, which is at the end of the Great Tribulation, seven years, that he will then go and do what? Cleanse that temple that the abomination of desolation has got in, right? The Antichrist. Guys, I don't know what else to say. I, I, I don't know what else the word has to say to all of us to recognize and be sober-minded that these are the last moments. And then we don't know how long. Nobody knows the time or the hour. But these are the last moments. And if you could do anything today to be bearers of the fruit of righteousness from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what will you, be, what will you do with what has been given and entrusted don't bury the talents as we read in the parables. Today is the day of salvation. If somebody on the radio or online or, 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 you know, on the website is hearing this and you haven't asked Christ to be your savior, what are you waiting for? Will you stand with me? We're going to pray and we'll close. Worship team, come on up. We'll have a closing song if it's okay. Worship our Lord and say, prepare our hearts. I get so excited when I read these. You guys can tell. You guys know me. I get so excited. You know why? Because just like every one of these things happened and came true, just like God said it would, everything he says about his soon return is happening and coming true, just like he said he would. He's coming. And I, it's so exciting to know that we may be that last generation 
we could be that last generation that for 2,000 years have looked for the return of Christ to come and to be ready and to know that today is the day of salvation. I, I just get so excited. What else is there to live for but to live for Jesus Christ? Father, as you've just overheard and, and, and our hearts through your word and the anointing and Lord, through your Holy Spirit and the way you speak to our hearts here this morning, God, we are alive and it's because of you, Jesus. It's because of salvation that we've been given by you alone. Lord, as your forerunner, John the Baptist, Lord, was so faithful to spread your good news, Lord, I pray this morning that you seal in the hearts of your people, that you will use the airwaves to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every single human being. Lord, you put a cemetery to remind us as we drive here, uh, Lord, I drive here every morning or whatever, and, and, and Lord, your people come on Wednesdays and Sundays to remind us that People have made a decision that has eternal consequences. Jesus, we pray, please take this community next to us, around us, in our hearts. Lord, please save. Asa Ana, save now, Jesus. And Lord, I pray, please fill us anew, afresh, Jesus, as you had gone to John and say, baptize me. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. I pray, please, let your Holy Spirit come upon a P, Lord, upon us right now. And Lord, if you've, been ba if you've baptized us or somebody here hasn't been baptized, I baptize them anew, Lord. But if they've, they've never, or if they've been baptized, Lord, I pray, refill and refresh this all now. As, as, as Peter prayed, a new filling, a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all of these things. We know we can do nothing good of ourselves. Let us worship you now, Lord. You are worthy. Alone you are worthy, Lord. We pray all of this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen.